All right, good morning, everybody. It was a base camp yesterday. I'm feeling a little emotional. It's all about emotions. Men do have them, I want you to know. And uh, some uncomfortable moments, but a real blessing. And uh, I think we should talk more about men's emotions and uh, don't stuff them in all the time. All right, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, so if you would please take your Bibles, and we are now in Matthew chapter 2, it's our 10th message in this series. I'm going to be reading uh, this morning from verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise! Take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation. Weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, 
Take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. One of the joys that we have in our church when we baptize someone, or sometimes when they join in membership, is hearing their testimony of salvation. Uh, We hear about the work of God in someone's journey. Uh, We hear about what took place, and sometimes uh, over the course of years, God was working in order to bring them to the point where they would recognize who Jesus is and what God is offering by way of salvation. Sometimes those testimonies are quite short. Sometimes they take a a little longer. But the fact is, you really can't capture everything that God did in bringing someone to Christ. And it's not because there's not enough time to hear the whole story, but there is a sense in which there is a mystery behind someone's coming to the Lord that none of us will ever fully understand on this side of heaven. Uh, We'll certainly never know the fullness of that story about one another, but we may also be only partially aware of the forces that God used to do His work in us. For example, if you were to ask any true believer how he came to Christ, What started it? What convictions did God work in his heart? What was the change in his thinking over a period of time? Who were the people that God brought into his path? What did they say to him? What kinds of influences finally uh, persuaded him that he was lost and in a hopeless condition? If any of us could truly remember all of that, then I think that uh, the details would be very sketchy because there are so many of them to think of. And I don't know this for sure, but uh, it may actually be one of the great joys in eternity to have a clear uh, retrospective vision on our whole spiritual history uh, with all of those details at hand and the ability to see the wonder of God's work in our life on earth. I really think that it would be an amazing experience to share that with one another in heaven. Uh, There'll be great moments of tension. Uh, What appeared to be chance encounters will be recognized. The person we may have been praying for and in whom we had an impact seemed to be so close, but then uh, there was such disappointment as he turned away. And then again, you can see God beginning a path of approach to him. And again, there's disappointment as they uh, turn away yet again. And really, when you consider that there is more at stake in that decision than any other decision that an individual will make in his life, if we have the opportunity one day of actually seeing what God did and all that was involved, I think it will be more 
dramatic than anything you've ever seen on Netflix. Well, we have an example of that kind of mysterious working in the passage before us. And I'm referring to these three men who are known in Christmas traditions as the wise men. Some versions uh, refer to them as the magi. And these are extraordinary men, aren't they? Of course, there's a great many traditions surrounding uh, the wise men. One of them is that there were three of them which, of course, the passage uh, does not specify, but perhaps people think it's because they brought three gifts, so there must have been three of them. Another tradition is their names, which are said to be uh, Baltazar, Caspar, and what's the last one? Uh, Melchior. already said Baltazar, but thank you. Uh, There's a tradition that one of them came from India, one of them came from Egypt, one of them came from Rome, And after meeting the baby Jesus, many years later, there's a tradition that they were actually baptized by the Apostle Thomas. Uh, Tradition says that their bones were buried in St. Sophia in Constantinople. And then they were moved to uh, the great German cathedral in Cologne, where they apparently rest to this day. Now, all of those traditions really distract people. And I'm only mentioning them here so that we can just get them Uh, out of our heads, and they distract us from the real points that God is revealing to us in the passage. I mean, undoubtedly, uh, yes, they did have names. I'm sure they did. And uh, undoubtedly, there was a definite number of them, but God did not include those details. And I think we all understand that many times those things can actually take us away from the primary message that God wants to give to His people. So what is it that God wants us to know about these men? What does He want us to see when we consider their testimony? Well, in verse 2, it's the thing that they were interested in pursuing. That's what God puts front and center. It says that they wanted to know, where is He who has been born King of the Jews? Now, Remember that uh, chapter 1 of this gospel answers the question of who is he? I mean, who is this person who embodies the gospel? The gospel, as it's presented in Scripture, is not a thing that people do. It's not something they experience uh, by joining a church or being baptized. Uh, The gospel is not anything that we do, but the gospel really is an individual Well, who is he? That's chapter 1. Chapter 1 gave us the answer to the ancestral question in the first 17 verses. Those verses give us the entire lineage of this person. And that's important because of the covenants God made with certain men, informing them that it would be through their physical line. So the ancestral question is important, and it's answered in the first half of chapter 1. Well, then the chapter goes on and it answers the physical question. I mean, if this is his ancestry, well then, how did he come to be? Uh, What's the nature of his birth? That's verses 18 to 25, which we finished covering last week. Well, chapter 2 is now occupied with the geographical issue. And it answers the question, where is he from? 
when you go through the chapter, when you look at the whole context, it's obvious that this is the very thing that God is laying before the reader. And the answer to that depends on which stage of infancy you're talking about. Because we're given four places that match the four stages of his early childhood. Let's just quickly note them, and then you can see how the whole chapter is structured. Now, the first place, of course, is the one uh, referred to in verse 6 as the place of his birth. He was born in Bethlehem. Right? Everybody knows that. Even secular sources will say that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But notice the second place, verse 15, which is the land of Egypt. So if you're asking where he is, the first answer is Bethlehem, but later on the answer is Egypt. Thirdly, verse 18, there's another answer, Rama. Or Rama. Rama is a little staging point about eight kilometers north of Jerusalem. Uh, it's on the border between Benjamin and Ephraim. And it was connected with Jesus geographically as well. And then finally, in verse 23... He was connected throughout all the rest of his childhood and then into his young adulthood with the little city of Nazareth in Galilee. So you can see that the entire chapter takes those four geographical answers and it explains his association with each one. And in every case, it was all entirely scriptural. Uh, as we read the chapter, did you notice that Matthew keeps saying, now, this happened that it might be fulfilled. And he was here that it might be fulfilled. And this took place that it might be fulfilled. So in every case, there is Scripture being quoted. In other words, there are scriptural roots to the geography of the childhood of this person who is the Gospel. Now, this morning, what I would like to do is begin exploring the question of where to find the gospel. This person himself is the good news. All right, where is he to be found? According to this chapter, that question was asked very early on by these wise men. And we're going to take the time today to understand their testimony. All right, so the primary theme we're interested in is the location of the gospel or the person of the gospel. But along the way, uh, we're going to kind of develop this sub-theme as we ask, well, how did the Magi find him? And how does that parallel the mysterious way in which God works in many people's lives to bring them the answers that they have been searching for? Now, we don't know if anyone else was asking the question at that point in time, but these men were. And the first thing that we need to understand in order to appreciate God's work in their lives is the whole issue of who these magi actually were. Now, that's a term that I bet you don't typically hear, except at Christmas time. Magi, right? Not a common word. I mean, we all know what they did when they found Jesus, but they certainly didn't magically appear out of nowhere with gifts in hand, as they do in every nativity scene. So, uh, who are these guys? Well, the word magi is actually Persian in its roots. Uh, the old uh, Persian word is the word magus, or uh, it could be magus. I'm not sure if the G is soft or hard, but it's the same root from which we get the word magic or magician. 
Now, in the ancient world, kings had magi in their courts. Now, we might refer to them as magicians, but to us, a magician is just a, you know, the conjurer of tricks and a bit of sleight of hand. But by contrast, the old, in the Old Testament world, uh, the magi were scholars. Uh, they were skilled in philosophy and mathematics and medicine and the natural sciences and especially astronomy. The Magi were called upon by kings to give counsel, uh, not only because of their uh, broad liberal arts knowledge, but also because uh, their consultation with the king or the queen often determined future projects or enterprises. And that's because these men studied the stars, and the stars were thought to foretell the future. And now that gave them immense political influence. They were often known as kingmakers because of their power and knowledge. Now, there's an Old Testament background to these men and their position as magi, and it's actually found, uh, you may recall, in the book of Daniel. You remember that when Nebuchadnezzar wanted counsel, uh, he called for the wise men of the kingdom, including the magicians and the astrologers or those who studied the skies, and that's this term. And to me, it's quite satisfying to think of Daniel in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and later on in the court of the Persian kings, and he's sowing a testimony for the Lord, a testimony that may have been the seed that planted the knowledge of a coming king, which was then retained for nearly six centuries in those lands before Magi showed up from that region asking, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? That might be part of the story of the Magi that someday in glory we will hear. And I'll come back to that idea a little bit later. Regardless, occupationally, these men were Magi, but racially, it appears that they were Gentiles rather than Jews. One of the indications for that in the passage is probably verse 2, when they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? I mean, the way the question is asked sounds as if they're asking about the Jews as separate from themselves. And, uh, you know, where is their king? If they were Jewish men, uh, they would more likely have said, well, where's our king instead? But I think the most important thing to note, secondly, is why they asked that question. Why were they even asking the geographical question? What brought them to do that? Well, the answer that they give is at the end of verse 2 when they say, For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, do you understand the significance of that comment? Because they're actually saying there that they have been recipients of revelation from God. Now, you may not see that initially when you read the question uh, initially, but just stop and consider what they're testifying to. All right, these men, their whole professional training has been in the location and the configuration of heavenly bodies. So, what they're really saying here is hey, we saw something unusual in the sky. I mean, they, they were certainly accustomed to how the night sky 
normally looked. So it must have been startling then to see this intrusion of a brilliant light in the heavens that had never existed in that spot before. And this was totally out of the ordinary for these astronomers. It would be like a surgeon discovering a whole new internal organ in someone that never been there before. Or the discovery of a metal in the earth that no one has identified before. It's something that anyone in those professions would immediately recognize as outside the realm of their professional knowledge. Well, evidently, they saw this light hanging low on the eastern horizon, and it didn't vary in position, even when the skies changed over the course of days and months. I mean, this star was stable, shining bright in the eastern sky as if it was almost calling them to follow it. Now, it's one thing to see such a phenomenon in the sky. But here's the question. How did they come to connect it with the Jews? And even with the king of the Jews? And that is a question that every believer needs to give the answer to. Because there's only one answer to that question. It's the answer that Scripture always gives when people come into the possession of that kind of specific knowledge. In other words, do we understand that this star really was like all of God's natural revelation in creation? I mean, it it was an unusual phenomenon. Yes, it was a miraculous phenomenon, but nevertheless, it was part of the whole realm of creation. And what does creation do for people? Well, it gets their attention, right? It gives them the knowledge of the existence of a deity, or at least of a cosmic designer, someone who can design all of the intricacies of nature. Uh, It can humble people when they consider their own smallness, against the infinite greatness of what's out there. It can put them on a search, as it often does. That's exactly what the Bible says nature is supposed to do. Uh, Psalm 8 says that the heavens do what? They declare the glory of God. I mean, the heavens are constantly talking. They speak of the glory of God, and the psalm goes on to say that there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. There's over 6,000 dialects on the earth today, and there's not a single one that misunderstands the speech of creation, which is exactly why God argues in Romans 1 that everybody is responsible for glorifying Him because He has displayed Himself in that way through creation. Nobody should be walking around in ignorance, saying, you know, all this just must have happened, appeared out of nowhere. Not when there's that display out there. I mean, you know, Romans says you would have to suppress the truth in order to come to that kind of ridiculous conclusion. But the thing that creation cannot do is identify who that God is. And it certainly doesn't reveal the way into His presence. For that information, we need additional revelation. So if someone is asking, well, how did the Magi come to ask their question? We know that this unusual phenomenon 
in the sky got their attention. They received a natural revelation. But when it came to the specific identification of a location or an individual or the position he will occupy or the people among whom he will reign, all of that information can only come through a spoken word from God himself. And that's where it always comes from. That's where you got it from. That's where I got it from. Now, how they received that special revelation, we don't really know for sure. Uh, It could have been given to them by God in a dream. Right? I mean, they're they're going to experience a dream in verse 12. Uh, They're warned by God in a dream, it says. They get a specific word from God. Don't go back to Herod. Uh, This revelation could have come to them by an angel of the Lord. That's what... Joseph experienced, verse 13, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Of course, Joseph experienced that before. Mary had experienced it with Gabriel. And my point is that there are suggestions in the text as to how God might have communicated to the Magi verbally, but the fact is we are not directly told how it happened. All I can say is that none of us are able to reason our way to correctly identify God simply by observing nature. No, God himself has to tell us, and unless he does, nobody's going to get that knowledge. Now, in the case of the Magi, it is possible, as I mentioned earlier, that God gave them that revelation through the Jewish nation itself. So just think of Daniel's testimony in Babylon and the fact that hundreds of thousands of Jews had been in exile there. Of course, as far as we know, the majority of them never came back from exile. The book of Ezra says that a little over uh, 50,000 came back with Zerubbabel to rebuild the country and remake the temple, but the majority of them uh, seemed to be quite comfortable in their Babylonian homes, and they actually never went back. So here's this vast body of people scattered in a foreign land, and the Jews had something that nobody on the earth had at that time, right? Uh, Paul speaks about this in the book of Romans when he says that those people were the sole possessors and keepers of the law. They had the Scriptures. So I want you to turn to a passage in the Old Testament law that might have played a part in bringing these men to the point that we find them in Matthew 2. It's in Numbers 24. So go to Numbers 24. This gives us the final chapter in the story and the ministry of a prophet named Balaam. Uh, Balaam was from a place called Peor, Uh, It's not located in Israel, but it's in northern uh, Mesopotamia near the Euphrates River. So this man was undoubtedly a Gentile. But in the last prophecy that he gave regarding Israel, he spoke an oracle that begins in verse 15. I want to begin reading in verse 16. He says, The utterance of him who hears, now note this expression, who hears the words of God. In other words, Balaam... He's going to give some information here that no one could get in any other way unless God chose to speak it to them, right? So the utterance of him who hears 
the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High who sees the vision of the Almighty who falls down with eyes wide open. And he means there he's falling down, he's prostrate, but his eyes are open. He can, he can see what God wants to say to him. Verse 17, what do you see, Balaam? All right, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Well, who do you see? Who do you behold? Who is not near to your point in time. Keep reading. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab, which, of course, would have been terrible news because you know, it was the king of the, uh, the Moabites who hired this guy to curse Israel. And now God is saying to this man, I'm going to batter your brow and destroy all the sons of Tumult. And his conquest here will be so complete, verse 18, that Edom shall be a possession. Seir also, his enemy, shall be a possession. While Israel does valiantly. Out of Jacob, one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. Now, it is highly possible that this prophecy, using the word star in connection with the one who is coming, would actually refer to a coming king. Now, how do we know that? Well, verse 17, a scepter will rise from Israel. So think of the question uh, the Magi asked again. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star. So let's just say that they were familiar with this prophecy. I mean, what if this was the scriptural background that gave them the kind of information that went far beyond just natural revelation in the sky. Now, I have a question for you. If that's the case, why doesn't Matthew quote it? Because when it comes to the other three geographical locations associated with the infancy and the childhood of the Messiah, Matthew quotes them. So why doesn't he say, now this was done to fulfill the word of the Lord through Balaam, and then quote the prophecy? Well, I want to suggest to you that one reason it wasn't quoted is because the whole context in Numbers, while it does refer to the Messiah, is actually referring to the Messiah in the end times, when he takes possession of all things. You can see that as I was reading it. So, if this passage was quoted in Matthew 2, we'd be saying to ourselves that its fulfillment happened when he was born. And that means the fulfillment, well, it can't be literal. When it talks like that, it's got to be spiritual in some sense. So, you know, he's going to conquer Moab and Edom and by some of these people coming to Christ. And that's what it means when he conquers them. It's not a, it's not a literal prophecy like we see in, in uh, passages like Psalm 2, uh, you know, where it says that he'll rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel and so on. We looked at that psalm many times in the book of Revelation. Well, Numbers 24 appears to be a similar prediction of the end times, which will have a literal fulfillment in the coming of Christ for the second time. So if it's quoted in Matthew 2, its actual fulfillment would be misleading. Does that make sense? But there is something else, and it concerns the use of the word star in verse 17. 
What does star refer to when it says, a star will come forth from Jacob, a scepter will rise from Israel and crush the brow of Moab? Moab. Well, it's not talking about a literal star, is it? it? It's clearly referring to the Messiah himself. He is the star. I mean, it'll be his scepter. And again, it'd be quite misleading if Matthew quoted Numbers 24 when speaking of a literal star that the wise men were following. Now, you may ask, why am I even raising the question as to whether or not this is a passage that the Magi might have known? I'm glad you asked. I think it's quite probable. I'll say this off the bat. I I do think it is quite probable that those people in Babylon, influenced by the Jews, knew about this passage. In fact, I think it's more than probable that ancient Near Eastern astronomers would know this passage given that their profession was to study whatever writings were at their disposal. I mean, these guys were were looking for any references to heavenly bodies. So with the infiltration of the Jewish nation into Babylon, living all through the Persian Empire, I think it's very possible that the Magi would be familiar with a reference like this. And yet the Holy Spirit doesn't quote it in explaining how they came to Christ, lest years later, generations of readers would be misled as to what it's actually talking about. So here's my application. Isn't it possible, when you look back at the mystery of how God brings certain people to Christ, that they were sometimes helped along in their journey by misunderstanding some verse or passage of Scripture. Right? Am I right? In fact, I know I'm right. Because I hear people give testimonies and they will often quote passages that I know very well have nothing to do with what they're talking about. Happens all the time. I get an amen. (laughs) I want to read you a passage from James Stalker's book on the life of Jesus Christ. It's just a short survey on the life of Christ. And Stoker writes about something that I think we all need to understand when it comes to our own progress towards the Lord and also when we hear other people's testimonies. Stoker writes, if the Magi search began in scientific curiosity and speculation, God led it on to perfect truth. In other words, It may have begun in astrology. It it, it might have begun in magic. It may have begun in the misunderstanding of Scripture about the star. But God led it on to perfect truth. He writes, that is his way always. Instead of making tirades against the imperfect, instead of that, he speaks to us in the language we understand even if it expresses his meaning very imperfectly and guides us by it to the perfect truth. Just as he used astrology to lead the world to astronomy and alchemy, and in the ancient world, alchemy was the idea that you could take a base metal and do something with it and produce gold or you know, some kind of magic elixir of eternal life or something like that. Just as God used that kind of alchemy to bring the world to chemistry, so he used the knowledge of these men, which was half falsehood and superstition, 
to lead them to the light of the world. That's true. When you look back at the way in which God worked in your life, especially if you did not grow up in a Christian home, you could take a journey in your mind down the path of God's providence to you, and you may be able to think of past events or misunderstandings of Bible verses or books by atheists like Richard Dawkins or even chasing another religion or a liberal denomination or you know, meeting people who maybe were only half living for Christ and you know, maybe they even totally threw off their profession of Christ later on, but at that point in time they were telling you, man, you got to get saved. And somehow in the divine, mysterious working of God, it was all woven together and you ended up in the right place. And that's because God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. As the heavens are high above the earth, so are His ways higher than our ways. And this is how Paul ends in Romans 11. He finishes 11 chapters of explanation about our redemption. Then he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Don't ever think that you're going to be able to trace God's ways by His footsteps. And that's the terminology being used here. It's like someone following someone else who just walked along the beach by the surf. Right? You can follow some of their steps, but when you get to where the waves are coming in, those clear footprints, they start to fade until all you can see is a heel mark. And after that, it's just a little indentation in the sand and and then it's gone. I mean, you, you simply can't trace the person by their footsteps because it's all swallowed up by the immensity of the ocean. And that is the way of God in salvation. And the application for us is to marvel at His ways. It's to praise Him as Paul does in the last verse of Romans 11. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, I mean, I mean, it all finds its source in Him. It all works its way through Him. It all comes back around to Him. It's all Him to whom be glory forever. Amen. But another application here, I think, has to do with the realization that the approach to lost people may be through the very imperfect or even the erroneous. It may be through a mixture of truth and error. It may be through an association with things that God puts outside the realm of proper Christian living. Now, having said that, please don't start dabbling in magic (laughs) and astrology, thinking somehow this is going to lead somebody to Christ. Please don't do that. (laughs) But my point is this, don't obsess over having just the right circumstances in order for your loved one to come to Christ. Because God may be using something you never imagined He would in order to bring that person one step closer to Himself. And you can make the specific applications depending on your situation. So when you hear 
someone give a testimony. And, you know, there are certain notes that just seem to be way off pitch in this spiritual journey. That's okay. God took those people and He met them where they were. And although, yes, it was all off-key at moments, it was astrology or even demonism or Jehovah's false witnesses or a Mormon influence and they stumbled into this person and they dabbled in this activity and, and on and on. Somehow, God was moving them along. He was making course corrections. He was edging them into the kingdom. And they ended up being saved and bearing a wonderful testimony. Maybe some of you have experienced that same type of journey because you came to the Lord a little later on in life. And you can bear witness to His mysterious ways. But, in yet another application, that's my third one, please don't let anyone stop with the imperfect. Maybe God used a particular religion or a liberal denomination that you were raised in and that has been part of the truth for you. Uh, For example, if you were reared as a Roman Catholic, you were taught that Jesus is God and, uh, you know, there is an eternity and there is a way to get to heaven and, and there is truth in some of those teachings. But here's the thing, don't ever stop until you're sure that everything you believe about coming to God can be verified by a word from heaven as it's found in Scripture. Because God probably isn't going to send you any stars on the horizon to follow. But He has given us the embodiment of His speech in our Bibles. So put everything to the test of Scripture, and that is exactly what happens later on in the story, right? Because in this story, Matthew keeps quoting the Scriptures. This happened, that it might be fulfilled. Herod's going to ask, where is he born? Those who know the Scriptures are going to say, hey, there's a verse for that. And that's what you want. You want the kind of testimony that is well aware of the magnitude and mystery of God's dealings and how He brought you through a field of landmines, including many false ideas and circumstances, but then you always want to end up with a Bible in your hand that's going to confirm who the Messiah is and where you're going to find Him and the proper approach to God through Him. You want Bible verses in the end. Now, I want to take you back, lastly, to what these men believed that actually motivated them to come. We looked at who they were, why they asked the question that they did. Initially, it was the miracle of the star that God miraculously created for that purpose. It may have been some scripture, although certainly some word from the Lord that brought them to the knowledge they had. But more than that, because the knowledge that they were given by the Lord became the knowledge that led to their belief. What did they believe? They say it in verse 2. We have seen His star in the east, and we have come to worship Him. Why? Because this is who we believe to be, the King of the Jews. I want to ask you a question. To whom was Matthew's book originally written? to the Jews, right? Do you know that these magi are the only people in the book who use that title of Jesus believingly? 
It's going to occur three more times in chapter 27, but never believingly. He's also going to be referred to as the king of Israel in chapter 27. Uh, chapter 20, yes, chapter 27. Uh, and yet these are the only people who use that title with conviction. Now, with that in mind, when you come to this gospel and you ask about who he is and where you can, you can find him, you're presented with this title as one of the identities of the person that you're looking for. I mean, who is the one that you need? Well, chapter 1 gives a couple of answers to that, doesn't it? It says right there, he's, he's Emmanuel, he's God with us. If you're looking for his personal name, it's Jesus. If you're looking for his position, he's the Messiah. But if you're wanting more, the next thing the gospel presents you with is this, well, he's the king of the Jews. In other words, this is part of God's revelation in identifying him so that we know that we've found the right person. Now, of course, being the king of the Jews is shocking news to many people. Uh, from the time that Jesus lived on the earth, there have been whole populations of people who totally reject the idea that salvation could come from the Jews. Uh, just think about the encounter that Jesus had with the woman at the well, living in Samaria. You remember she raised this whole question of worship locations. And she said, well, my people say we should worship in this mountain. And your people say, well, we've got to worship in Jerusalem. Uh, you're a prophet. Tell me, which one is it? And Jesus said, well, you know, the hour is coming when nobody's going to worship like that anymore. But you do need to understand this, he said. You need to understand that salvation is of the who. Right? You've got to go to the Jews for that. Well, these magi who are Gentiles, have come to that firm conviction and they use that title of Jesus believingly. And this means that we have confirmation here of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Right? Remember what God promised Abraham? He said, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In Romans and Galatians, Paul explains that when Gentiles come to Christ by faith, they become like the children of Abraham. And that's part of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. I mean, we are children of Abraham. Why? Because we're doing what Abraham did when he put his faith in God who made a certain promise. So we put our faith in God. We put our faith in His provision of the Messiah and we Gentiles become children of Abraham and it's a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant promise. Well, here you have a book that opens with the fact that this person is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now think of those promises to Abraham. And then look in chapter 2. Here come the Magi from the east. Gentiles asking, where's the king of the Jews? Why do they want to know? Because they've got it all figured out what the right response is supposed to be when you find the king of the Jews, even for a Gentile. I mean, they're not debating it. They're prepared for it. In fact, they brought what they needed with them in order to give the proper response, which is why when they finally found him, they worshipped him and they gave him those kingly gifts. You know, it's important that you have a story as to how you came to the Messiah. 
So I want to ask you this question in closing. Do you have a personal testimony? Now, your testimony has no value if you say, I was born a certain way and that gets me into heaven. Because the Bible tells us how we were born and it's not what you're thinking. You were not born a Christian. In fact, the Bible says you were born the opposite. Your testimony also cannot be, well, I was born Jewish. I've got Jewish blood. I'm a, I'm a child of Abraham physically. It can't be, well, my parents believed such and such. I've always been in a Christian family. I've always been part of some kind of faith, a religion. I've kept the Ten Commandments. There's another one. No. You need a testimony about the workings of God in your life that led, in some cases, maybe through strange paths. And yet it brought you to the truth, the light of the truth, as it's revealed in Scripture. And then you came to the place where the King of the Jews meant everything to you. I mean, you are ready and willing to lay everything at His feet. You are ready and willing to worship Him. People who do that will have a true story of salvation to tell. I can't wait to hear the fullness of that story in heaven. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful for Your working. Though mysterious at times, we know that You are working in the hearts and lives of people, bringing them even now to the Savior. Father, if there's someone here who does not know You, would You reveal to them a clear path to Scripture and what it reveals about who Jesus is and where He is to be found. And We pray that You would continue to work the Gospel into the hearts and lives of our family and friends, some of whom we have prayed for for years or decades, and increase our faith as we share our story with them And we become part of their story in them coming to know the gospel. Father, we thank you that you've given us this passage. May you work it into our hearts and lives. We pray in Jesus' name.